1: Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at tribecafilm.com/slash slowburn. Hope to see you there.
2: Here's one thing Jonathan Katz knows. A lot of people in Haiti right now, the ones who lived through that earthquake a couple weeks back, they're sleeping outdoors.
0: You know, I I was in my house, the Associated Press House in in Petionville, when the earthquake struck in in 2010. And if you have been inside a building during a major earthquake um, and that building has, has collapsed or fallen apart, around you, you are not eager to, to go indoors again anytime soon. And so, yeah, so the, the first thing that, that, that I knew was going to happen and that I heard about happening in this new quake zone was that everybody was sleeping outside. It took me three months to sleep indoors again. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that, that a lot of people are going through um, the same thing. Out of
2: fear or, or there just wasn't a place available?
0: Fear, concern, <laughs> um, uh, 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 recognition of reality, I think, is, is, how, is, how, is how maybe I would describe it. This summer, Jonathan watched as
2: one tragedy after another unfolded in his old home base.
0: It is just misery upon misery upon misery.
2: First in July, there was the assassination of Haiti's president. And then in mid-August, that earthquake struck in a rural zone southwest of the capital. A few days later, came flooding due to a tropical storm. Jonathan says many of his old friends and colleagues, they've just had enough.
0: Anybody who can at this point um, is, is trying to leave. Anybody who can try to find a way to go somewhere else is trying to do so, which really says something. Because Haitians are just, on the whole, I mean, and this includes my friends, they're just some of the most patriotic, just, you know, Homeland loving people in the world—it's just a real mess. Um, the, the 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 Haitian phrase, the Haitian Creole phrase that people use is uh, "tête chargée," which means like your head is full, and just all of all of all of their heads are just full at this point. They just can't take anymore.
2: Someone look at this summer, where Haiti's president was assassinated, this earthquake struck. And then Haiti also dealt with a tropical storm, Tropical Storm Grace. Some would see all this and say Haiti's unlucky. Would you say that?
0: Not really. The common denominator behind all of them is instability. And, and really what that comes down to is poverty. And and that has its roots in policies. It has its roots in decisions that have been made in Port-au-Prince, but even more importantly in Washington, uh, in Ottawa, in Paris, in New York, at the United Nations. These are policies that go back decades, um, in, in some cases centuries, and it's really those decisions in the past that we're seeing play out again and again in what seems like this you know, never-ending cycle of bad luck.
2: Today on the show, we're going to trace the origins of Haiti's compounding disasters and talk about what would really get this country up on its feet. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you're driving, cooking, or doing laundry, Progressive knows the podcasts you listen to go best when they're bundled with another activity. Much like how their Progressive home and auto policies go best when they're bundled. Having these two policies together makes taking care of your insurance easier. And it could help you save too. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. That's a whole lot of savings and protection for your favorite podcast listening activities, like going on a road trip, cooking dinner, or even hitting the home gym. Yep, your home and your car are even easier to protect when you bundle your insurance together. Find your perfect combo. Get a home and car insurance quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Jonathan Katz is about to put all of the United States on blast over its treatment of Haiti. So let me just come in here and say... Americans are also really generous. We've got big fix-it energy. We funneled millions to Port-au-Prince when its ramshackle buildings came down after the 2010 earthquake. But Jonathan, he thinks that big fix-it energy can be problematic if you don't spend enough time considering just what you're fixing or why. Like, maybe you're feeling compelled to send cash to Haiti right now. If you're an American who's sitting here thinking like, "Okay, well, I guess should I give money to the Red Cross like, would you do that
0: no <laughs> that, that that I wouldn't do because that that doesn't really help anybody because the Red Cross doesn't address the the root causes of the problems in Haiti and, and in fact has a history of of adding to to the root causes. You know, we, I mean, specifically as Americans, have played a major role in causing Haiti's poverty, like a direct role in 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 making Haiti as poor as it is today. So I would say that like if Americans want to get involved in fixing Haitian poverty, that that is possible, but it, it means first and foremost, addressing the inequities and and the the extraction and just all of the, the roiling that we have done as Americans in the past. You can't just come in and say, it's day zero. You know, Haiti is is in its natural state of poverty, and I, brave American, am going to fix it. It really takes a, a, a lot more digging and a lot more self-awareness than that.
2: Is it worth looking at the 2010 quake as an example of, like, here's where you see where the will is there, but the resources aren't? And when the resources come in, they come in
0: in the wrong way. Oh, 100%. One of the funniest examples that, that I remember from 2010 was that the Fiji Water Company, <laughs> distribu- they, they they donated water that they flew in from Fiji. If you look at a map of the world, you'll see how far Fiji is from Haiti.
2: Yeah, that seems like a little
0: extra. <laughs> Yeah, very much so. You know, Haiti's also an island. Haiti has water. It just needs, you know, and it has some water treatment. It just needed to stand up that that amount of water treatment. It didn't need to be like, you know, this like spring water from the South Pacific. But when people remember, if people even now remember the, the quake 11 years ago, they often remember, you know, that there were these sort of big totemic figures floated about money. Often in in the sentence or the question, where did the money go? And if you actually look back at at that money, first of all, much more was pledged than was ever delivered. And the money that was spent, the vast majority of it, never went to Haiti, kind of just went in circles from from one hand to the next – in the donor countries. One of the biggest figures was uh, half a billion dollars went to uh, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense. And the point of that money was to fund a military response that did do some things. I mean, the the U.S. military helped repair the the port in Port-au-Prince, but the vast majority of that money, the vast majority of time and resources were there to prevent social unrest And to essentially keep people from leaving Haiti and coming to the United States. Hmm. The risk of all of those things happening were extremely overblown. But, you know, the vast majority of U.S. soldiers, Marines, airmen, coasties that went uh, never left their ships. They never never set set foot on Haitian soil. So they were there to do a job that they didn't really need to be doing? Exactly. Exactly. So— you mentioned the Red Cross. They also had a half billion dollars. Exactly, and and they spent it internally. Um, I'm not saying necessarily that they they pocketed it. It's just like this is how an organization works. Like they have people, they have to pay their salaries, they have to pay their travel, um, and then you know they bought like a bunch of hygiene kits, they bought a bunch of tarps, they they distributed those. But you know a a, a, ver- a vanishingly tiny fraction of all of the money that that was spent or talked about or whatever ended up in the hands of Haitians. I mean it was it was it was far less than 1%. And you know, much of that you know went to sort of you know, the, the Haitian elite. The vast majority of just ordinary Haitians saw nothing. They got a tarp, they got whatever, they got a t-shirt from an NGO. Maybe they got a bag of rice that lasted them, you know, a couple of weeks and that was it. So they end up clearing the rubble themselves, repurposing it and rebuilding their own homes. And the way that they rebuild their homes is as fragile and unsafe as it was before the the last uh, disaster struck.
2: Yeah. We talk about, you know, don't give a man a fish, teach him to fish sort of things. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this is (laughs) what's happening in Haiti is the opposite of what we sort of tell each
0: other we're supposed to do
2: when folks are in a bad situation.
0: Yeah, that particular phrase often comes up. It gets everything backwards. Haitians are, by necessity, the most (laughs) self-sufficient, creative people um, that you you will ever meet in your life. This is a country where everything that you do, you have to do for yourself. If your house catches fire, and I have been in a fire in Haiti, so I can tell you this firsthand. If your house catches fire, you're going to put it out yourself. There's no fire department that's gonna come and and, and and take care of it for you. If if the road is in disrepair, which all roads are in Haiti all the time, you're not gonna wait for like you know the state construction crew to come fix it. You're gonna go and you know use whatever little money you have and buy a, you know, like a a bag of cement um, or a bag of any kind of road-filling material, and then you'll sit out in the road and you will fix the pothole yourself and just sort of flag down passing cars and ask them to, like, you know, chip in to help you pay for for the bag of cement. These kinds of things happen all the time. If any country in the world is full of people who could teach us how to to fish, Hmm. it's Haiti. The problem isn't a lack of know-how. The problem isn't a, a lack of desire or, or will. It is really a, a lack of, of material resources. But understanding why those resources are lacking in Haiti is necessary in order to figure out how to fix that problem.
2: After the break, we will get into the history that explains why Haiti lacks resources in the first place. Spoiler alert. The U.S. has played a big role. More with Jonathan Katz in a minute. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. That means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: It's Opinionpalooza season here it's late. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, the host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. As this Supreme Court term hurdles towards its close, the justices are handing down decisions that will shape our politics and our lives for years and decades to come. My team and I are putting out analysis of the biggest cases just as quickly as we can bound to our closets and fire up our laptops to speak to you. From presidential immunity to social media content regulation to domestic abusers' gun rights, we will be here unpacking the news for you. Listen to Amicus wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Part of what I really appreciate about your reporting is that you put something like this earthquake or the 2010 earthquake in a wider context of how Haiti's always been at this end of the stick where european countries are coming in and draining it of resources in all kinds of ways and setting the country up for failure i wonder if you if there's one example in particular you would give of how that worked because i feel like there are many but Would you give one example to kind of contextualize the historical roots of what's happening now?
0: Yeah, so Haiti's real claim to fame in the world is that it is the only country ever born out of a successful revolution by enslaved people. It was a French colony called Saint-Domingue, And the enslaved people who were brought there from Africa um, between 1791 and 1804 rose up, overthrew slavery, defeated uh, the most powerful army in the world, Napoleon's army, and made themselves free in in 1804. And for that, they were rewarded with exclusion and exploitation by powers, uh, many of whom, especially the United States, uh, were still practicing slavery and did not want this example of a self-freed people um, reaching their own enslaved population. They feared it. Yes. And that is a major theme of American history um, leading up all the way to our Civil War. There's talk about sort of another Haiti happening um, all throughout the, the 19th century.
2: Weren't Haitians also compelled to pay back? the people who had enslaved them?
0: Exactly. So France's biggest response was in 1825, King Charles X sent over some gunboats and said, I got a great offer for you guys. It's an offer you can't refuse. Either you pay us back for your freedom, for the land that you and your, your fathers and mothers were enslaved on. If you do that, we will give you diplomatic recognition, which is absolutely important. And if you don't, we're going to reinvade and bombard you. And Haiti agreed to the deal, paid back every cent of the, uh, uh, what ended up being 90 million gold francs, which is worth around probably, you know, $20 billion today. And they paid all of it back. The principal was paid back by the 1880s. And the last bit of interest was paid back in 1947. What was the cost of paying all that back? all of the resources, that, all of the customs revenues that, that could have been kept in Haiti and uh, used to build the country, to build infrastructure, ended up going to French planters. But more than that, in order to fill the hole in the Haitian budgets that was left by by the fact that Haiti was prioritizing paying these these their former you know, slave masters, they had to take out major loans. And some of those loans were taken out from U.S. banks. The most important U.S. bank that was involved in that uh, was the National Citibank of New York, now just known as Citibank or Citigroup. And in 1914, in order to ensure that Citibank and, and other Wall Street banks got their debt payments paid, The U.S. Marines came ashore, went into the Haitian Central Bank, and took out—they basically just stole half of Haiti's gold reserves, put them on a U.S. warship, and took them to Wall Street and put them in a vault there. That set Haitian politics into a complete tailspin. And in the summer of 1915, the last Haitian president who was ever assassinated until uh, Jovenel Moise was assassinated just a couple of weeks ago. He was assassinated in that context, which then was the pretext for a U.S. invasion. And it led to an occupation that lasted until 1934, which is the longest time that the United States has ever militarily occupied a foreign country until that record was broken um, by the United States and Afghanistan in, in the past year.
2: A lot of Americans don't know this history. And I wonder if you think about the cost of that, because I I know you've written pretty squarely that, yes, Haiti has been subject to natural disasters, but maybe the biggest disaster that Haiti has suffered has been imperialism. But when you work with editors and try to just plainly say that, how do they react to that?
0: It depends. (laughs) It depends on the publication. Um, Often not well. Yes, and and it is because Americans on the whole, even educated Americans, don't know that these things have ever happened. These are just... These are just blank spots in American history books and, in, and more importantly, in, in the stories that, that we tell ourselves. So, so it sounds crazy. Marines coming ashore and just robbing the central bank. That sounds crazy. Yeah, like, that's some piracy stuff right there. Exactly. It sounds like you must be just making it up or that you have an agenda. And, I mean, I, I, I do have an agenda, which is to tell the truth. <laughs>
2: You've drawn this parallel between how the United States has behaved in Haiti and more recently in Afghanistan. And I'm wondering if we can tease that out a little bit more here. Because, of course, at the same time that Haiti was suffering so many tragedies this summer, the United States was pulling out of Afghanistan with dramatically terrible outcomes for Afghan citizens who are concerned about their safety. So how would you compare and contrast these relationships between the United States and Haiti and the United States and Afghanistan?
0: You know, if you look at, at the two, in Haiti and in Afghanistan, the United States, you know, started with with an invasion to thwart uh, what it considered to be a, you know, a hostile militarized movement. Um, in Afghanistan, it was the Taliban. In Haiti, it was uh, uh, basically guerrilla fighters uh, known as Kakos. We stood up. Pupping governments in uh, Afghanistan with uh, Hamid Karzai, in, in Haiti, Philip uh, Dartanov, uh, who was just sort of this milquetoast senator who had no real constituency. Dartanov's government had to depend on the Marines for protection. The Marines came up with the idea of uh, instead of having just the Marines there that we would stand up a Haitian client military that would basically, you know, police and fight the insurgents in our stead. In Haiti, that was called the Gendarmerie Daiti And the same thing has been tried in many other places since uh, that, that the United States has invaded, occupied, et cetera. Um, in, in Afghanistan, of course, that's, uh, you know, the, the ANA, the, the, the Afghan uh, National Security Forces.
2: Do Afghanistan and Haiti also share this kind of NGO system where non-governmental organizations come in and try to do some of the work that you would traditionally think a government would do. And how did that impact both places?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, Afghanistan is a great example of a country where um, the uh, United States blows it up and then in order to rebuild it, assigns itself and its defense contractors um, and and humanitarian groups, humanitarian non-governmental organizations or NGOs, um, contracts to to rebuild what it just blew up. And Haiti is a very similar case. The United States in Haiti uh, uh, implemented an explicit policy of bypassing Haitian governments and standing up what are now known as NGOs, in its place. And when this policy was, was uh, first concocted in the 1970s and, and 1980s, um, there were good reasons for doing so in Haiti, namely that Haiti was ruled by a dictator, Jean-Claude Baby Doc Duvalier, but of course that he was a dictator who had uh, remained in power with often direct uh, US support. So, you know, this didn't happen in a vacuum.
2: Well, in terms of the NGOs, I guess I have a chicken and an egg question for you. I think some people in the United States would say the whole reason we need to stand up these outside organizations inside a country like Haiti or a country like Afghanistan is because the governments inside those countries are not necessarily trustworthy that you know there's corruption and graft and if we are instead filtering our money through third parties, maybe more of it will get to the people who need it. What would you say to that?
0: Um, I would say that that is a sensible reaction in theory, but it doesn't really jibe with the evidence on the ground. Why not? If it was the case that there was sort of this endemic corruption and the United States is trying to, and, and you know, uh, foreign NGOs Are just trying to work their way uh, around it, then you would expect that at the very least, once the United States got involved, corruption would get better, right?
2: So you're saying the corruption came with US involvement, was a byproduct of it?
0: Absolutely. You know, corruption is often talked about as this excuse for why you can't give money to Haitians but then we then end up making Haiti a more corrupt place than it was before and and our best friends in Haiti in terms of 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 the US government and US power players are this very tiny Haitian elite who have their hands in all kinds of violence and you know probably drug trafficking and just really, really nasty stuff. Um, so we're, we're we're kind of talking out of both sides of our mouths when we say like, "Oh well, Haiti's too corrupt. That's their that's what their problem is."
2: To me, it's been interesting over the last couple of weeks to see how that corruption has trickled down to like very local politicians who are now responding to the disaster. On the ground. And when I say the corruption trickle down, I just mean the atmosphere where people feel like it's corrupt and so they don't trust their institutions. Like the Washington Post had this article, and it ended with this kind of devastating scene of a mayor who was saying, you know, no one trusts us to rebuild for them because they've kind of they've been to this movie before. People think I'm holding back help from them, and I'm afraid for myself. And he said, you know, take me in your helicopter. I'm ready to go to Miami. Like, get me out of here.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say is that, and I don't know specifically the the person that you're uh, referring to, but um, I very much doubt that they were elected because there were no local elections held, basically, for the last 10 years. Anybody who's in a position of power, even in a local city, um, was probably appointed to the job by Jovenel Moise who again was assassinated just a couple of weeks ago. But yes, look, there is great, great mistrust. But again, I think it's important to understand the extent to which that is a feature and not a bug of this system. If you are just, you know, a, a Haitian farmer in 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 you know Grand Anse or the Department of the South, the, the areas that were hit by this latest earthquake, um, and and you're just, you know, you're just trying to to provide for your family, yeah, I wouldn't trust anybody because because people have been taking things from you your entire life and they've been giving you very little. They've been making big promises um, that 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 they don't keep. If the U.S. was doing this the right
2: way, and I guess I should say it's partner countries as well, what would that look like?
0: Honestly, the biggest thing is just to put money in Haitians' hands. And I don't mean the Haitian government. (laughs) I don't mean, you know, the Haitian elite. Put money in people's hands so that they can rebuild their own lives in, in, in the best way that they see fit. Haitians can do it, Um, They just need the money and the resources and the time to to, to do it.
2: Jonathan Katz, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Jonathan Katz is the author of the forthcoming book, Gangsters of Capitalism. It's available for pre-order right now. His newsletter is called The Long Version. You can find it at katz.substack.com. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Davis Land, Daniel Hewitt, Carmel Del Shad, and Mary Wilson. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I, I'm Mary Harris. Go find me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Meantime, I'll catch you right back here tomorrow.
0: Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The The great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that People will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.